I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 69 for February 2018. I'm Duncan, and 1969 is the year of some genuinely giant movies. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Wild Bunch, True Grit. Uh, they weren't all just westerns. Uh, there was also Midnight Cowboy. Uh, pretty good start, though. Yeah, which isn't a western, Midnight Cowboy, though. Mm. But um, it is the only X-rated film to ever have won the Best Picture Oscar. Yeah. Uh, which got downgraded to an R. I look, after the embarrassment of riches that was the horror releases in 1968, you might remember from last month, 69 was a little more pedestrian. Titles like The Haunted House of Horror, starring Frankie Avalon, <laughs> uh, Satan's Sadists, starring Russ Tamblin. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And It's Alive, starring someone called, and I kid you not, folks, Corveth Ousterhouse. Nice, Corveth uh, Ousterhouse. It was also the year of Japanese oddities in the form of Blind Beast mm-hmm. and the horrors of malformed men. Uh, both deranged cult classics based on the work of Edogawa Rampo. Horrors is particularly fun, by the way. Uh, from the very beginning, it's genuinely hard to pin down which uh, genre director Tereo Ishii thinks he's working in. Uh, Malford Men starts in like true horror fashion in an insane asylum, no less. Right. Yep. Delves into broad comedy and then spends the entire second act as a murder mystery. Uh, and then it all turns a little madder as the film becomes an erotic The Islands of Dr. Moreau. Um, <laughs> if you can imagine such a thing existing. Yeah. Complete with naked women swimming in a river and being fed like fish. A chained woman eating live crabs off of her dead lover's decomposing body. And even an extravagant musical number complete with half-naked dancers and, like, gaudy body paint. And if that's not enough, the last 20 minutes sees the release of, like, this torrent of unpredictable twat, plot twists and reveals that... And, and reveals that end up in two people exploding in a rain of frankly laughable special effects. It's <laughs> yeah, amazing. Sounds incredible. Yeah, I loved it. 1969, eh? 69, yeah, yeah. So, Duncan, what's the, what have you been watching? Uh, well, I watched a bunch of films, actually, uh, seeing as we've been off for a couple of months. But there's just one I wanted to talk about, seeing as it's Oscar month and we're going to be covering Oscars, is Call Me By Your Name. Cool. Yeah. And thanks to a friend of the show, Darren Bevan, for giving me the tickets. Really appreciate that. Now, you've seen this as well, haven't you? I have, yeah. Yeah. I thought Timothy Chamalat uh, does an exceptional job as Elio, the son of two intellectuals spending the summer in the Italian countryside. When Arnie Hammer's Oliver arrives in the house, Elio begins to feel desires he struggles to harness. Uh, I thought the film was sumptuous. It, the set's dressed with subtle care and precise accuracy for 1983. The locations melt off the screen as the temperatures of the places and the characters rise. It recalls the work of French auteur Eric Roma. That's true. I hadn't thought of that. You did right. Oh, yeah. That's just, I was halfway through the film going, this is so Roma. Yeah. <laughs> and while it may be controversial to say, this film does it as well as The Master, I thought. Luca Gargadino has made a career of making atmospheric pieces that have almost like an obsessive attention to detail. His 2010 film, I Am Love, was positively glowing with these qualities. But unlike this film, there was something kind of coldly detached about the behaviours of its characters. It was difficult to... Um, to kind of get into, to, to penetrate. Instead, Call Me By Your Name works its magic with a quiet devastation. It doesn't grip in the same way that like last year's Moonlight did, but it plays with audience expectations and shows the building of desire, uh, the waiting for the lover to return, and the shattering loss of first love 
so well that it is a remarkable piece of direction of actors that I kind of thought was nearly unmatched this year from what I've seen. Yep. Yeah, I agree. It's one of my favourites of this year. Mm. Um, I mean, we're going to talk about this a lot more later, but I, I love this film. I thought Timothy, as you say, Shyamalan was amazing. Yeah. Just one assured uh, uh, performance, you know. He's he's so natural in it. Yeah. That's the amazing thing. Yeah. And I love how it flicks between French and English and Italian, the characters are speaking, just in the same scene. It doesn't feel forced. It feels really natural. There's this special connection with that because a lot of that area is around where I've spent a lot of time in Italy. So... Is where my wife's uh, spent 10 years of her life, basically. So a lot of the scenes there were actually, especially when they're cycling through the countryside, like I've done that. That's yeah. like 20 minutes from where I did that. Yeah. And Bergamo, where they go at the end, is basically uh, near where we got married. Yeah. So I've been there as well. You've been there Which as well. Lovely to see it on screen. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and there's something that really, uh, this is a really good film. If, if you are interested in Italian cinema, that's particularly northern the way it looks. It's very yeah. different than the southern. Uh, you know, Sicily or Napoli or any of those places. So, like I say, that attention to detail was beautiful. Uh, and it's one of those films that I got to the end of it and I was like, oh, yeah, that was nice. And I just kept thinking about it for days yeah. afterwards. It really does uh, settle in and, and, and make a home in your mind. So, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um also thought that Michael Stuhlbarg, he exudes such a philosophical calm throughout the film until that beautiful final conversation with the son. Oh, um, yeah, look, I'll, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about it again later, mm. but... Yeah, I loved his work in this film as well. Yeah. It's like you say, it, it, it feels like he's, he's not a main player for most of the film, but then he gets an incredibly wrenching scene at the end. Yes. Blew me away. Yeah, apparently he had to fight quite hard to keep, get that kept in the film. Who did? Um, the director, Bark. really? Yeah, him wow. and James Ivory. It, it, it had quite a problematic transition to the screen. James Ivory, who adapted the book, uh, he was supposed to direct it, yes, and then he was going to co-direct it, yeah. And then the backers said, "We don't really want to co-direct it because it's going to be this, um, you know, yeah, compromised vision." And um, Ivory and Stolberg really wanted to keep it, and the director wanted to knock it out because he said it was, you know, too, I guess, literal with the themes right. and the rest of it. Um, but they really fought, and so oh, it was one that kept it. Don't I? Yeah, I, I listened to a really great podcast uh, with the producers talking about the screenwriting process of this film. So mm. I'll talk about it more later, I'm sure, but. Um, I think James Ivory does wonderful work. Yeah, fantastically. Yeah. He's a very talented writer. So, yeah. yeah. And what about you? What have you been watching? Uh, well, like you, lots of films because it was a week off during this uh, for me, <laughs> so I, I delved quite deeply there. But um, I'm going to, like like you, to talk about an Oscar contender a bit here in Darkest Hour. So Gary Oldman's big, blustery, but charming performance as wartime Prime Minister Winston Churchill seems uh, pretty assured to see him win his first Oscar to go with the Golden Globe he picked up for the role. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got great support in Ben Mendelsohn as King George grappling realistically with the speech impediment that the King's speech made a whole film around. And the film manages that masterstroke, I thought, of making the appeasers in Parliament not into monsters but real human beings with a viewpoint that doesn't seem foolish while, while you're watching the film. Mm-hmm. Um, when Stephen Delane's Viscount Halifax pushes for an approach to Italy to discuss a peace treaty with Hitler, feels like a man with a reasonable desire to not waste human life or see England destroyed, you know? Mm-hmm. I think other films might have turned Halifax into a villain. It would be quite easy to see him that way. Mm. I think history maybe does. Yeah, I mean, it's very much, uh, I haven't seen the film, but very much as he is seen as the yeah. uh, the, the kind of the opposite to Churchill was one of the two, a fork in destiny, basically. Yeah, that's right. But it, but, it, but it's easier to look back and see that, mm. see, you know, folly and harder for it to see it as it happens. And I admire Darkest Hour for telling that story. You know, it's more dramatically appealing as well. If it's mm. made him a villain that Churchill had to rail against. Mm. That wouldn't have been as interesting as someone 
who actually had a valid point and cared yeah. about the lives of people. Yeah. You know? However, Churchill is somewhat idealised by the script, which shows him as a drunk, an overeater, and a frequently angry curmudgeon, but stops short of dealing with any of his other failings. Mm. Worse still, it invents an event that has him leaping out of his chauffeur-driven car on the way to address Parliament, and instead travel the underground so he can gauge the feelings of the common men and women. Mm. Yeah. The pivotal scene has Winston's eyes welling with tears as a young girl ridiculously denounces fascism and reaches a crescendo of, of absurdism when Churchill recites a poem only to have a young black man step in and finish it for him as Oldman weeps with affection. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, it feels like exactly what the internet tells me it is, a scene inserted solely to add diversity mm. and prevent the story being what it really was. Uh, a bunch of stuffy white men arguing about the future of the world. Mm. And, you know, that's what it was, so it probably yeah. should have been told that way, but here's the scene that feels horrendously out of place. Yeah. You know? That reminds me of a similar thing in Nixon, the film where he goes to the uh, Lincoln Memorial in the middle of the night and ends up talking to these hippies who are protesting the war. You know, and there's this kind of thing, oh and he's like, we're, we're, we're trying to do the best we can, and they're like, you, you, you've got no control over it either, have you, this machine, you know, kind of thing. And, and it's like... Well, that's a wonderful story, but I'm pretty sure that didn't happen. Oh, yeah, And I'm yeah. pretty sure Nixon wouldn't have got into a heart-to-heart with a bunch <laughs> of war-processing <laughs> hippies down in Lincoln. No, 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 no. And I'm sure Churchill wouldn't have done that either. So. Oh, no, and he didn't. It's yeah. pretty clear when you're watching yeah. it. It feels artificial. Yeah. It feels like he should have driven to deliver a speech, and instead they've gone, you know, what What about if he did this, yeah. eh? <laughs> and there was a young girl and a black guy, and, you know, and yeah. Rough. I like these calm little moments before the storm. It reminds me of Beethoven. So, Simon, what's the news? All right, I'm not even sure how to start with this, so I'll just get it out there. There is a, a Detective Pikachu movie on the way. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the yellow animated monster that was a cartoon hit before people, many who were old enough to know better, I'd say too, Duncan, <laughs> decided to hunt him and his friends to near extinction with their smartphones is making a comeback, a big screen comeback, a big screen live action comeback, no less. Yep. Based on a Japanese video game yet to be released in the West, Detective Pikachu follows a young boy in his quest to find his missing father. Ryan Reynolds will provide the voice of Pikachu, and Ken Watanabe and Bill freaking Nighy will also debase themselves in what surely has to be the worst idea ever. <laughs> Even though director Rob Lederman previously took the terrible idea of a Goosebumps movie, made something pretty cool. Yeah. So who knows? But I mean, on the face of it, terrible, right? Yeah. I just hope Ryan Reynolds does his um his his angry psychotic Scottish cat impersonation from oh. Voices. That would be yeah, great. Yeah, that just, would be good. Yeah, it's made yeah, a return. That's true. <laughs> That's crazy. Ah, oh, Detective Pikachu. Yeah. Probably be a massive hit. Look, we keep saying it, but one of the last Golden Age actresses has passed away. Dorothy Malone was ninety three, born in nineteen twenty four. She worked for many studios, starting with spoiler alert favorite RKO. Ah, awesome, awesome. And uh, moving on to Warner Brothers, which is the reason I recognize her as she starred in one of my favorite films, The Big Sleep. She played the bookish bookstore clerk who drinks rye and flirts so memorably with Bogart when he uses a place of work for a stakeout. Uh, by the way, did you know it was called the Acme Bookshop? No. Yeah, fantastic. Um, she also appeared in a film we spoke about in the Idol Apino podcast, Don Siegel's Private Hell 36, which was the last film produced by the filmmakers. And just two years later, Malone went on to win an Oscar for her role as the wild wife Mary Lee Hadley in Douglas Sirk's 
1956 melodrama written on the wind but her final film role was just as memorable too in 1992's basic instinct she played the wide-eyed friendly old woman who had poisoned her entire family mm-hmm. do you remember her no i don't yeah and they go and see i was reading up about her and uh, i haven't seen basic instinct in who knows oh, how long? It's been a long time for me. But I did remember that. I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. She's like really unnerving and she's really sweet and friendly. Yeah. And yeah, she'd poisoned her whole family. She was a friend of uh, Sharon Stone's character in it. Right. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that was her final role. Oh, wow. All right. And news that probably only means something to old timey film fans like myself and Duncan. I mean, listen to what we just. <laughs> uh, Robert Wagner has been named a person of interest in the death of his actor's wife, Nellie Wood. Oh, yeah, I heard about yeah. this. Wood died back in 81 when she went missing from her family's yacht. Wood. Wagner, the boat's captain, and Christopher Walken, there you go, folks, were all aboard the boat that night, and Wagner was the last person to see her alive. He was later found dead, floating in her nightgown. At the time, the death was ruled an accident, but the case has always remained one of those notorious kind of mysteries. What really happened that night? Why did Wood's body have bruises that suggested a possible assault? Uh, It all led to the case being reopened back in 2011 after the LA coroner's office amended Wood's death certificate to change the manner of death from accidental drowning to drowning and other de- undetermined factors, which is, um, I mean, that's um, an amazing cause of death, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Look, I, and I think this one's going to remain a mystery. Wagner turned 88 two days ago. Mm. Uh, still working, too. Yeah. And the details see, still seem really vague. The account's so kind of murky and distant. I think we'll never know what really happened. And I can't see this investigation going anywhere, either. No. Uh, they, they said that they got like new information from a witness. You're like, really? Yeah. Like, there's only, what, a couple of witnesses on the boat? Just imagine walking in there, interviewing. Imagine interviewing walking about it. Oh yeah, I saw nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I was asleep. The walk, the walking being part of this is always the thing that got me the most. For some <laughs> yeah. reason, it's walking and Wagner hanging out together. It yeah. just always amused me. She was doing a film with Walken, I think, right? So that was yeah. why they were. They, and there was some rumor that she was. They'd been. Um, they might have been having an affair or something right. like that. And they'd been out for dinner and she'd been drinking heavily because there were witnesses for the dinner and uh, she'd been drinking heavily and flirting with walking and all this kind of stuff. And it's all second, secondhand hearsay, basically. But yeah, yeah, apparently along those lines. But um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's always been one of those strange mysteries. Yeah. And it's been that kind of uh, LA Confidential hush-hush. Yeah, of, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, totally. totally. Yeah. It's amazing it's never really affected, um, oh, unless his career was going to be something else, it's never really affected Wagner's career. Yeah. Certainly hasn't stopped him working. And uh, Steven Soderbergh continues to push the boundaries in his way from his career of effortlessly switching genres to creating a new distribution path with the independently released Logan Lucky. He's now shot an entire film on an iPhone. Uh, Unsane stars Claire Foy as a woman held against her will in a mental asylum, channeling Sam Fuller's shock corridor, and with a visual palette occasionally reminiscent of the dogma ethos, Unsane's trailer suggests another modest budget thriller touching on similar plot and themes as the 2013 film Side Effects. I thought it was an interesting one for him to do. Yeah, I saw the trailer for this. It looks pretty incompa- uh, compelling, yeah. Yeah, and um, maybe he just didn't want to be lugging around the big camera anymore, you know, because he does do his own camera work on his films. So. Oh, is it? right, right, right. Yeah. There you go. It's just easy to reach in your pocket and grab your iPhone. Yeah, out, eh? <laughs> that's right. Yeah. It's just, just a pain when you get a message, when you, know, when oh, you get a, like a text yeah, alert yeah, or something. Yeah, you stop. Uh, oh. Hold on, people. Facebook. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, look, and finally, Oscar frontrunner Jalama Del Toro's The Shape of Water has been hit with a, a swathe of accusations of plagiarism. Oh. Yeah. The first complaint is that he pinched plot elements from a 1969 play from Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Paul Zendel. Then viewers noticed similar ideas in the 2015 short, The Shape Between Us. Now, the producer of the short have put it all down to coincidence. 
But Zindel's family are still pushing the idea that his play must have influenced Del Toro's screenplay, despite the play being about a dolphin and not, you know, a, a merman. <laughs> um, and then just when I thought it all gone away, Jean-Pierre Junot, the celebrated French director of Delicatessen and Amelie, also accused Del Toro of plagiarising, in this case, by copying a scene from Delicatessen uh, of a couple sitting together on a bed watching an old musical and whimsically following the dance moves along on, with their feet. Mm. And Jeanneau is particularly brutal saying Del Toro lacks self-respect <laughs> oh, and that he has enough talent not to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. We'll get into it later. But, um, oh, we will. We will. <laughs> uh, and look, and breaking news as we record this anyway, film composer Johan Johansson has died suddenly at the age of 48. Uh, he's best known for scoring the memorable soundtracks of Dennis Villeneuve's films Arrival Prisoners and most impressively Sicario. That was just a stunningly effective soundtrack. So, um, yeah, it literally happened a couple of hours ago. So as we Yeah, this, yeah so. I just saw that before I came over. Yeah, yeah, it's a real shame. Uh, and just quickly, I just wanted to talk about, we, we often do Ben Wheatley watch. The British director's new film is called Colin Uanus. Mm. Uh, continuing the director's rapid creative approach, it was filmed in just 11 days in castles wow. around England. Speculation that the cryptic title that sounds like a Viz comic character <laughs> is actually a <laughs> sly mock of the Shakespeare play Coriolanus. Seeing as it's filmed at Hustles in England, it seems like a solid theory. Uh, it stars Wheatley regulars Sam Riley and Neil Maskell and could be a harken back to a field in England. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Wow. Good title. Yeah. He, uh, but man, that guy's prolific, eh? Yeah, totally. Doesn't stop. Something I can do for you? Would you do me a very small favor? I don't know. It depends on the favor. You know Geiger's bookstore across the street? Going to wait for him to come out? Yeah. Mm, it'll close for another hour or so. Raining pretty hard. Yeah, that's right, it is, isn't it? You know, it just happened. I had a bottle of pretty good rye in my pocket. I'd a lot rather get wet in here. Well, looks like we're closed for the rest of the afternoon. And uh, welcome to No Comps, uh, where we review a latest film. And seeing as we're heading towards the Oscars, we decided we would look at, not that we had too much choice, I guess, because everything's Oscar bait <laughs> at the moment, but we chose an Oscar-nominated film, and it was The Shape of Water. Starring Sally Hawkins, Octavia Spencer, Richard Jenkins, and Michael Shannon. Directed by Guillermo del Toro. America in the 1960s. Lonely, mute Eliza works in a top-secret government laboratory as a frequently overlooked cleaner. Then, one day, a new experiment is brought into the lab. A strange, unnatural amphibian man brought in by the sadistic Strickland. The amphibian man is frequently abused, but, but not by Eliza, who begins a wordless relationship that becomes a love. That is threatened when Strickland is ordered to kill a creature and perform an autopsy. Eliza, with the help of a neighbour and a friend at the facility, hatches a plan to free the amphibian man. Look, while the luminous Sally Hawkins receives the deserved plaudits for nailing the tricky lead role of Eliza, um, for me, the film belongs in many ways to Michael Shannon. Uh, he is the ogre of this fairy tale. And as with most fairy tales, it's the villain who lives longest in the memory. Shannon oozes a darkness that chokes all the bright interiors he passes through. He possesses a sadistic drive that propels the plot forward, but both he and Hawkins are helped by supporting heavyweights, Richard Jenkins, Octavia Spencer, and the ubiquitous Michael Stuhlbarg. Surely his family must miss him. He's been in every film made last year. Yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> um, this and Call Me By Your Name, what a double hit film. Yeah. And and one of the things I love about this film is uh, The Shape of Water gives all these supporting characters their own stories. Mm -hmm. You know, Stuhlberg has this great, compelling story. Shannon mm. has this fascinating story. Mm. So even though he's, in many ways, just just the villain, I guess, yeah. 
He's got this really compelling story you're following around. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Stuhlberg's also um, in The Post. The, oh, uh, is he? Yeah, Spielberg. See, I, the Post is one of the few best film nominees I hadn't seen this year. Yeah, I managed to uh, kick back and watch it. It's very, oh. um, it's very Spielbergian, old school, kind of kind of like Bridge of Spies, where you're like, eh, they don't really make films like this anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Stuhlberg's in there just for like, blink him, you'll miss him. But uh, Stuhlberg. He's Stuhlberg. Which is like, my goodness, man. Yeah. You must hate your family. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> just like working 24 hours a day. Just, just on a conveyor belt from film set to film set. Yeah, well, he did, he's in Fargo season three, which oh, is, you man. know, like 13 episodes. So you're like, what are you doing, Work man? what you can, I guess. Yeah. The place they work at, you know, the um, top secret place, it felt like Willy Wonka's factory, just without the airtight security. Yeah. <laughs> just a little less joy. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, but like it was way more secure and secretive at Willy Wonka's than it was. Pretty easy to get in and out of this place. It is really, isn't it, eh? Yeah. And uh, look, the breakout scene for me was the highlight of the film, I thought, um, you know, when they're trying to break out yep, the monster. Yep. The film has jarring blasts of sex and gore that feel more like intentional gross out of the audience rather than trying to signify any particular plot development or rising suspense. Yeah. I felt they were just more there for, yeah, I don't know, not even scares, just kind of gross you out kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, totally. Eh? I don't know if we want to mention what they are, but there no. is some stuff there that's particularly, yeah, grueling. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I guess you know if you've seen a few Guillermo del Toro films, you might not be surprised to find that. But it's still, yeah, yeah, it is quite confronting. Yeah. Um, look, this is without a doubt to me one of the best looking films of the year. Mm, it yeah. looks sensational. The sets alone are spectacular. Yeah, um, you talked about that lab. Um, I'm obsessed with that. Those sinister labs. You know, they're all like slickly dirty surfaces. You can almost smell the damp rot. Mm-hmm. You know, um. And I loved Eliza's tiny flat above the cinema, which is revealed in the, that, that opening shot. There's this long opening shot where it floats through her um, her apartment and it's all underwater and it closes in on an alarm clock. She knows it's yeah. about to go off and the water drains out of it and it just comes back to normal, which mm. is fantastic. Yeah. It's a great moment. It's, a, um, it's beautiful. Um, and I found myself with dust in both my eyes at the end of the movie and I think that's got a lot to do with um, the, the, that's in, the way it looked at the end of the film. I mm. think I was just... Blown away by, you know, without giving it away, but the last shots of that film are sensational. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, so pretty. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because um, I think we're going to diverge on our opinions on this film. I'm not sure we will. <laughs> <laughs> because um, I, I kind of found that Del Toro and Vanessa Taylor's script develops supporting characters and then kind of leads them down dead-end streets. So none of them get to have a personal victory. They're ostensibly left alone, never to be understood by their loved ones or society at large. And they're really there just to serve Eliza's plan, basically. Um, Eliza's love affair with the creature is the central focus, aside from the moral dilemmas of interspecies sex. Uh, Not that it stopped Tom Hanks and Daryl Hannah and Splash, obviously, but um, there is, I kind of found an infantilizing of Eliza that is a little uneasy. Uh, Even in a fantasy film set in the 1960s, about tortured creatures from the Black Lagoon finding love, Eliza comes across as a kind of a manic pixie girl. Right. I didn't find her a believable character. I didn't find I could really kind of relate to her in any way. Well, I mean, it is a fairy tale. Um, yes. And I think that's, there are good and bad elements to making a fairy tale movie. That's right. You know? Yeah. Um, but it also, it also takes these kind of glancing swipes at every ism around sexism, racism, homophobia, xenophobia, yep. without committing to any single topic for any length of time. And I didn't see the point of that, like, other than, hey, this is, it's all anotherness. We're all other. We're mute. We're gay. We're black. We're, we're a fish man. Lagoon. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah, a merman. Yeah. Merman. 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 Um, yeah, there's, 
there's <laughs> but you know what i mean like i kind of felt like that was just token yeah, completely yeah. token it was like oh look at these nasty 1960s people aren't we so enlightened i found that pretty self-satisfied and like the most just done in the most yeah like i said it's a fancy tale for kids but this is not a kid's film it's got like sex and gore and no violence i think, I think and we've so, said this before a few times too um, it's a really easy argument to make for someone watching a film like The Shape of Water that, yeah. man, weren't people like, you know, yeah. sexist and racist <laughs> and homophobic in the 60s? It's like, wow, yeah. hot take, you know? Yeah, exactly. um, look, I don't think we're going to disagree that okay, much. Okay, right. right. Uh, and we'll get to this a bit later as well, but Del Toro is my pick probably for best director mm-hmm. uh, because I adored this film in a lot of ways, but it wasn't because of the script, mm. you know? Uh, because even if you don't buy into the accusations of plagiarism, you still have to concede that The Shape of Water... It's pretty derivative. Yeah. Um, and it suffers from something that Duncan once brought to my attention. And now I, I realize I'm seeing, uh, when I do see it, I, I pick it up quite easy, quite early. And that's it. You can pretty much pick what's going to happen with this film quite early on. Yeah. There's no real surprises and twists. Mm. There are individual moments that can be quite shocking. But, um, you know, it is leading in one direction. And, of course, it's not always the worst thing in the world, particularly when you're distracted by such ravishing visuals. And you could argue that because the film is essentially a fairy tale, then it will have a, like a fairy tale-type structure. Yeah. Uh, but, I don't, but I don't remember feeling this way about Pan's Labyrinth, which was similarly a film that touched on fairy tale mm. tropes and themes. Yeah. Um, so, so it doesn't have to be this way, you no. know? And yet it is kind of a quite predictable yes. kind of series of events. Yeah, look, th- there's something at the heart of The Shape of Water feels contrived. Manipulation at its most transparent. Now, of course, all cinema is a manipulation. It's a contract we enter into when we buy the ticket. But there exists just this kind of single dimension to Del Toro's tale. It transports us, but only to the cinema seat, to watch an impressive show. If the film doesn't enchant you, like it didn't really enchant me, then the plot doesn't have anywhere near the tension, intrigue, or unpredictability that it required to keep you truly engaged. Yeah. So I was like... That's a great performance. That's amazing production design. This is really well shot. That's great effects. But um, so like the the characters didn't resonate with me particularly. Surprisingly, it stays a shade under two hours. I found it really surprising. Is this is the kind of world a director would normally just make a meal out of? Like I was expecting this to be like two and a half hours long. I gotta say the second half was pretty slow too. Yes, it yeah. was. Yeah. Like you say, the breakouts, the standout scene. Yeah. Um, I think you're probably right about that. Although I love the ending. Um, and, and the opening shot. Yeah. But after the breakout, it feels like there's a long stretch before we get to the end of the film. Yeah, there is. Yeah. And I mean, like, naturally, like, Shape of Water will be compared to Del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth, as you just have. But in my case, not favorably, Pan's Labyrinth had me hooked immediately, drew me into a vivid, striking fairy tale world with danger, magic, and terror around every single corner. And it had me on the edge of my seat until the gut punch of a finale. The Shape of Water was nice. Yeah, no, you know? Pan's Labyrinth is a much better film. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm totally convinced of that. I've got no doubt about it. Yeah, well, I mean, to me, Pan's Labyrinth is one of the greatest films of the the noughties. Of yeah. The, you know, it genuinely would it's be... It's his a, masterpiece. It is masterpiece, and it will be a top contender for, for that. And and with this, with The Shape of Water, I kind of felt like it was all of Del Toro's things that he likes. You know, just very plainly like, hey, check out the things I like. Benny Goodman songs, and I like... Um, 1960s cinema and I like The Creature from the Black Lagoon and I like musicals and here we go, you know what I mean? And it's kind of like if I went, hey, let me entertain you and I'll just throw at you James Bond and Cricket and The Clash and, you know, it's I'd just watch like... watch that film, by the way. <laughs> I'm sure you 
happened. But you know what I mean? Like, it would just be like, oh, Star Wars and Indiana Jones. And he's, you know, it'd just be like, oh, well, that's a nice list. And that's what I felt watching this. It was like, there's yeah. a list of things that Del Toro yep. likes. And he's a talented artist, but I didn't, it doesn't engage. Okay. It, it's I, I think the only difference in our opinions is I think his artistry carried this a bit further for me. Um, I don't disagree yeah. with the, 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 the script issues um, yeah. at all. Uh, and look, one thing I really didn't care for, by the way, was the dream dance number. Mm. You know, uh, I think because, I mean, we should touch on Doug Jones. I think he does a fantastic he job. Does, yeah. What he does, um, bringing the amphibian man to life. I've, I found myself disappointed, not lifted up, like I'm no doubt supposed to be, uh, by a scene in which they uh, Eliza imagines herself able to sing and dance in a black and white Hollywood dance routine. Um, and it's not Jones doing the dancing, and I think that's the problem. Right. You know, Jones has created this... Um, studied kind of animalistic movements and they're replaced by a dancer's grace and I find myself not bleeding for a moment that I'm watching the same right, being. Yeah. Do you know yep. what I mean? I do know what you mean. Yeah. And I was really disappointed by that and I think that is supposed to be this great moment, you know, this great sort of um, moment of uplift and yet it's the opposite because I'm taken away from this performance yeah. that I was really enjoying. Yep. You know, I think Doug Jones, I mean, he's always been that that figure in in Del Toro films. He's yeah. so important to his success. That's right. And he's so important to making the Amphibian Man a believable character. Yeah. So that when you take him away, I don't buy it. That's a good call. I hadn't I hadn't got to recognise that. The visuals was nice were nice and I still remember those, but mm. none of the story, none of the plot, none of the characters, none of the message, none of the themes, none yeah, of the love yeah. story didn't stick with me, which I think is fatal in this part. Yeah. Um, I, I mean I've said many times before when we talked about films, films with a great sense of style. They don't stand the test of time no. because other people will come along and develop and, and copy that style or be, yeah. beat that style. It's a very – I mean, they're probably um, – I'm, I'm probably being a bit broad in that, but stories with uh, – films with great stories do always stand the test yeah. of time. Yeah, and as you say, I mean, Jean-Pierre Jeunot has more than enough case to have a, hey, tap him on the shoulder and have a conversation about this. Yeah. Because it not only kind of does it take this – Amelie kind of thing, but it also has that city of lost children delicatessen kind of feel yeah. to it, and you're like, even down to the the the, the kind of color palette to an extent. Yeah. Um. So he's not wrong that those two scenes. I watched them back to back. He's not wrong that they're similar. Yeah. 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 But visually stunning. The cinematography, the the production design, I was in love with immediately. I was like, this is going to be a feast for the eyes when yeah. the first. You know, I mean, you know that going in, but really seeing on the big screen like that, it was, yeah, it was magical. Yeah. That was magical, but then just didn't quite grab me. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, 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 I'd say I enjoyed this film a hell of a lot at the time I've mm. watched it. If it becomes the film to win best film, I don't think I'll be entirely shocked or disappointed. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm convinced Del Toro has better films within him. Uh, perhaps ones with more pleasing, challenging plots. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it is, however, heartbreakingly beautiful to look at. Um, he's always loved his monsters, and he has never conveyed that love. I think with more sort of adoration and swooning sort of magic than he does in this film. Mm. Uh, I agree. Pan's Abner is a much better film. Contemplate this on the Tree of Woe. Okay, welcome to uh, one of our favourite parts of the show, the Tree of Woe. So this is where we get something that's bothered us in our month of film going, and uh, we hang it up on the Tree of Woe, much like um, Conan was hung up in Conan the Barbarian. So Duncan, um, who's your victim for the Tree of Woe this month? Look, in this time of uncertainty, of upheaval and power struggles, both in the political world and the film industry, it's difficult to not throw your hands up and say, I give up, but we must remain strong and fight the good fight. Argue for the finer things and call out the bad when we see it. That's why we must continue with the tree of woe. And I have chosen to go after a relic of an old time, something that needs to be eradicated. 
something that is a blight on the film industry and has taunted us for too long. The blooper reel. (laughs) (laughs) It has long outstayed its welcome. Peter Sellers even blamed it for him not winning an Oscar for being there when Hal Ashby insisted on placing it over the end credits. And apparently he pled with him not to because he said it will just destroy the fact that this is a serious film and that my performance is real. Um, If the gifted director of exquisitely toned films like Harold and Maud in The Last Detail can be so misguided by tempting cheap laughs, then there should be an obvious warning bell that lesser directors will be easily swayed by the siren's call of the blooper reel and crash onto the barren rocks of humorlessness. Look, my diatribe a couple of episodes ago concerning both Fist Fight and The House was about the dire state of modern mainstream comedy and both of those abominations had blooper reels. It has become a mandatory requirement that any comedy film has them. Anchorman even managed to make an entire second film out of its yeah. outtakes. <laughs> Smokey and the Bandit popularized them, with Burt Reynolds memorably saying, keep rolling, keep rolling, this is good stuff. Well, I say, stop rolling, stop rolling, this is awful stuff that you didn't consider adequate enough to put in the final cut of a film as laugh-free as Office Christmas Party. So your final credits are being played, blooper reel. See how you like being nailed to the tree of woe. But one nail per limb won't be enough. We'll just keep hammering slightly different nails into the same wound (laughs) until you're begging us to stop. (laughs) That's brutal. Um, I can see why they exist. It's a way to get people to watch the credits, eh? But um, they're pretty bad. Yeah, but do you watch the credits? Are you actually reading, oh, look, there's the key grip. Oh, that was a good joke. No, you're just watching more of the film. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point you make. Um, the, the one about being there is interesting. I didn't know that story. Yeah, that was part of my research, actually. I was kind of like, oh, well, and I knew the blooper reel. I remember it vividly from Smokey and the Bandit. That was the first time as a kid I saw it, and I was like, whoa. Um, so I remember that, and I was kind of looking into it, and that was definitely the one, I think, because it was such a massive hit, that film. Yeah. But everyone was like, oh, yeah. we should yeah. start doing that. Um, so probably, I don't know if that did popularize it. I'm right. sure it occurred before, but, um, yeah, the one I'm being there, I was like, yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's a crazy story. Yeah. And what about you? What, what's, what's irritated you this month? Well, look, it's a weird season for film watching for me. Uh, suddenly I'm putting all my genre films on the back burner to plow through all the Oscar contenders. And I always reach a stage where I start to resent the Academy Awards. Uh, firstly, I hate the way all the nominees come out at the same time, you know? Mm. Seven of the nine best film nominees came out here in more or less the last month, as if the previous 11 months only turned out two worthy films in Get Out and Dunkirk, which I don't believe is possible. I just don't think that's true. And I hate the way awards are given in clumps, so that it's a genuine shock to see you know, Denzel Washington nominated for his wonderful turn in Roman J. Israel Esquire, a film nominated for no other categories. Mm. Uh, nominations like this should actually really be way more frequent, mm. you would think. And why the hell is there no category for stunt performers? Or maybe stunt team. Tell me about it. it I mean, the, that's that annoys me. That should definitely be a thing. It really yeah. should. I hate the way it becomes a game to pick the winners as well. As much as I sometimes love playing that game, I've got to admit. Mostly because it forces me to make awkward leaps. For example, saying a film will win a screenplay award to justify the fact that I think it'll win best film and it has to have these two categories mm. in boxes. And then there's the way we fall into think, talking about the nominees as having momentum. <laughs> or falling away as if we're watching a running race and not studying a completed piece of art. And how is it we're even discussing a film losing momentum over a matter of weeks? <laughs> yeah. You know, no one says, geez, the Mona Lisa is a great painting, but it's really lost momentum over the last <laughs> 75 years. I mean, that'd be stupid, right? wouldn't it? Right? Yeah. But there's, still, there's still cues to see the Mona Lisa. Yeah, play, I you think know it's I mean? going well. Right? It's yeah. holding up. I think, I think it's going to look a couple more years in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And like I hinted at before, I really don't care for the fact that my viewing patterns changed so much over this month. 
Sure, it's a diet of solid films and wonderful performers, but I also want to watch an old Hammer film mm. or a classic Western or a film with Tyrone Power or Joan Crawford or an indie horror. I mean, we're not film reviewers, Duncan and I, and I wouldn't care to be one. I like the fact that we can careen from film to film, decade to decade, genre to genre, without feeling like we have to watch the emoji film because there's a, re- <laughs> a deadline to review it tomorrow morning, you know? Yeah. That's not my bag, and Oscar season is as close as I get to feeling like that. Right. Um, but you know what I hate more than anything else about the Oscars? What's that? It's the fact that we end up watching great performances and great films with great scripts and then packing niggardly little faults to them, uh, trying to pull a thread that'll unravel the whole damn thing because somehow we need to say that one person or one film is the bestest. Yeah. And, and that kind of sucks. Yeah. You know? So up in the tree you go, Academy Awards. <laughs> so the buzzers can try and pick at your gorgeous golden skin. But don't worry too much because I'm sure as soon as you're hoisted up there, I'll come running back to you, pleading tearfully to have you taken back off the tree. That's just all part of the love-hate relationship I have with the Oscars. <laughs> uh, fair enough. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. It, it, it is all ridiculous and it is all uh, yeah. political and, 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 and financial. Um, yeah. And It's a weird game in it, a lot of ways. Yeah. It is a weird game. And I think one of the cases you can make for it being so obviously a game, really, really almost um, tangibly a you can see the, the, the kind of chess pieces being moved was, I think it was 2000 or, or 99 when um, Shakespeare in Love won yes. over top of Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. And there's this great photo hunted out on the internet where Spielberg won for director and it basically won nothing else. Won a few technical mm. categories, but it won, you know, Tom Hanks didn't win it, didn't win Best Film. Yep. That was the big shock. It didn't win Best Film. And there's him sitting there with the rest of, I don't know, DreamWorks or whoever else yep. made it. And he's got an Oscar in front of him and he looks miserable because he knows... <laughs> He's had uh, he's been robbed. Yeah, that same program wrong got robbed, and then of course you've got everyone's favourite um, executive producer Harvey Weinstein smiling like a lunatic with his yeah. arm around Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, and she's holding her Oscar, and he's holding his only Oscar that he won, I think, for yeah. producing for that. And everyone said, "Look, this, come on, I mean." Shakespeare and Love is a nice little film, but yeah, this sure. is Saving Private Ryan. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you you want to talk about the future kind of thing? Saving Private Ryan is as far as war films go just completely changed the game yeah absolutely and, and uh yeah and so i think ever since then i've always gone wow well you ha- if you hunt that photo out it does this is a shot of like this really unimpressed spielberg with an oscar in front of him yeah for best director yeah <laughs> funny great spoiler alert Okay, so that's spoiler alert for this month. Yeah. Um, we'll be doing an Oscar predictions podcast, which will come out at the same time as this one. Yep. Um, we will pick our favourites and also the ones we think are going to win. Yep. Uh, but Simon, what was your favourite film of the month? All right, look, uh, when you think of classic Brit horror, most people think of Hammer Studios. Mm-hmm. Uh, nerds might also consider Amicus films. And true 24 karat geeks might also make a mention of Tygon Pictures. Okay. Um, but pretty much nobody talks about Ealing Studios. Uh-huh. Uh, best known for a series of classic comedies in the 40s and 50s. But as I discovered, uh, way too late, I'm afraid, mm-hmm. uh, they also made one of the best anthology horror films of all time, with 1945's Dead of Night. Uh, the concluding story, an absolute cracker, with Michael Redgrave in a very controlling ventriloquist style, right. is the clear standout. But all the stories are really solid. Even a silly comedy piece pays off in the film's wraparound story. Um, and that's probably the strength of Dead of Night. So many anthology horrors I've seen, and I've watched a heap of these over the years, have weeks like silly wraparound stories to sort of contain them all and give them a reason for existing. But Dead of Night has a really solid, clever way to put all the elements together. It's a really satisfying finish as well. Um, So it's a great film throughout. Um, And if no one's seen Dead of Night, I really recommend it. eh? Oh, I'll have to borrow that off you. Yeah, sure, absolutely. That'd be great. 
Well, uh, my favourite film, uh, well, one of my favourite films was Call Me By Your Name, but before I saw uh-huh. Call Me By Your Name, I saw my other favourite film of the last couple of months, which is also an Oscar-nominated film, yep. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Right. So Irish playwright Martin McDonough delivers the crowning glory he has always promised. In Bruges was a fine, quirky debut, even if I found the kind of gushing praise for it slightly undeserved. And Seven Psychopaths was a hit-and-miss meta-journey through the gangster genre, flirting with the writer writes himself into his own screenplay gimmick that Charlie Kaufman had done to far greater emotional resonance in our one of our favourites, Adaptation. Right. But this time there's no denying McDonough's hit the bullseye. Uh, an expert piece of casting with Frances McDormand as a mother trying to find justice for her murdered daughter in a town that simply wants to look the other way and forget. She posts three billboards demanding justice from jaded but kind sheriff Woody Harrelson, who can do this kind of stuff in his sleep. Mm. But it is Sam Rockwell who knocks this one out of the park as the comic book reading suspect beating redneck deputy. Rockwell plays Officer Dixon with the perfect amount of anger, humour and pathos. With small-town America under the microscope, idiosyncratic dialogue, killer one-liners, quirky characters, and Francis McDormand present, don't be too surprised if you experience a Coen Brothers deja vu to all of this, particularly when the director employs their favourite composer, Carter Burwell, to score the piece. Look, the film barely puts a foot wrong with the characters you want to spend time with. It is compelling, unpredictable, moving, and often hilarious. Yep. Um, And I know it's copped a bit of stick, Um, Sam Rockwell's character particularly. Um, I don't get that, by the way. People's objection to Rockwell is like, oh, he gets a redemption story, and yet he's still this racist horror. Yeah. Like, does he really, though? I yeah. mean, I, I think the way, the, without giving too much away, I think there's an arc to his character. But yeah. I mean, if you go into films expecting everyone to turn out to be angels at the end of them, yeah. you know, we're older than that, eh? You know, yeah. I mean, we we can expect character, characters to be more complicated and films to be more complicated. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. I agree. It just. It was so fun the whole time throughout it, and uh, you, you know, I didn't, I genuinely didn't quite know where it was going. Yeah, and and actually, I thought about this film when I was talking about Shape of Water mm. as being quite a predictable. You can see where it's going twenty yeah. minutes in. You, I certainly couldn't with this film. No, no, and it even does a kind of, a kind of, you know, bait and switch occasionally with a few plot lines yeah. later on where you think, oh, it's going, and then it kind of really yeah, doubles, yeah. doubles back. So, no, I really enjoyed it, and I mean, you know, it's, it's casting right across the board. You know, you got Peter Dinklage and. Lucas Hedges and yep. um, John Hawkes is great in a small little role. And I think the only one who was really just not was Abby, Abby Cornish. Cornish. I was like, what are you doing? She's got a scene with Mark Francis McDormand. She's got a couple of scenes with Woody Harrelson and she's just. Yeah, she's, she's just, blown off the screen, unfortunately. It is, yeah. It was a, it's just a poor piece of casting. Yeah. Um, I don't want to give anything away either for those who haven't seen it, but there's this moment between Francis McDormand and Woody Harrelson when he's interrogating her and something happens. And there, yeah. there's this look on both of their faces where I was just. Both of them just kind of transmitted exactly what they were feeling. Yeah. No dialogue you could see. Yeah. And their whole relationship just turned on a dime yeah. in a second. And it was all natural kind of human instinct. And I really loved that. And that was the moment. I remember seeing that and going, she's going to win the Oscar. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which leads us nicely into the in, Oscar into predictions. Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Oscar predictions. So, um, um, so the song we're going out to, Duncan, is? Is Soft John Stevens' Mystery of Love from Call Me By Your Name. Which Absolutely. Is Nominated for an Oscar. He's got about three songs in there. Yeah. Um, Mystery Love's beautiful. I really like Visions of Gideon, which is the final song that's played uh, over the end credits, talking about blooper reels. Yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> just Man, this film could have used with the blooper reel. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you want me to stick around for um, the end credits, yep. then this is the way you do it uh, at the A end. A good it, song. Well, and also visually what's going on. 
yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, magnificent. That'll stick long in my mind. Yeah, not a mid-credit tease for the next. Um, <laughs> yeah, copy by your name too, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where there's just the, the the villain, you know, like from a Marvel. Yep. Yeah. Um, Guardians of Galaxy three. Yep. Um, but no, this is this is mystery of love. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Stick yep. around for the Oscar podcast. Absolutely. And Hear our uh, predictions. See how right or wrong we're going to get it. <laughs> yeah, it'll be good fun. And then you can just, you know, like have your um, self-loathing moment with the Tree of Woe Oscars again. Yeah, exactly. I can relive it all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you yes. next month. Oh, to see without my eyes The first time that you kissed me Boundless by the time I cried I built your walls around me White noise, what an awful sound Fumbling by river Feel my feet above the ground Hand of God, deliver me Oh, 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 is me The first time that you touched me Oh, the wonders ever seen yourself feel nothing so as not to feel anything what a waste